Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. In education research and policy, we talk a lot about math and reading scores. But education is obviously much broader than math and reading. Indeed, in a typical high school, students study English, math, history, biology, chemistry, physics, foreign languages, computer science, music, and more. And even then, not all education happens in traditional K-12 schools or universities. In this episode, we focus on art instruction. What does serious art instruction look like? What do students get out of an education in the arts? How might K-12 art instruction be improved? And what can art instruction teach us about education more broadly? To discuss these questions and more, I invited Tom Richards onto the podcast. Tom Richards is the director of the Florence Academy of Art, an art school based in Florence, Italy, that aims to provide the highest level of instruction in classical methods of drawing, painting, and sculpture for students wishing to pursue careers as professional artists in the realist tradition. Tom is also a painter and one of the most thoughtful individuals in art education. Tom Richards, welcome to the report card. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. So, Tom, you're the academic director of the Florence Academy of Art, and we're on an education podcast. So, of course, we're going to talk about art instruction and K-12 art instruction, but you're also a painter, and I think that's the best place to start. So, first off, would you characterize yourself as a classical painter and an instructor in classical painting? Yeah, I think sometimes those labels are not always so helpful. I don't think if you go back 400 years, I don't think Rubens woke up in the morning and thought I'm feeling particularly Baroque today. I mean, most of these terms were invented afterwards. So I I actually don't know what I would label myself. I'm sure some people label me as classical. Some people would call it boring. Some people would call it, you know, dead in the water. Some people think it's incredibly exciting. Um, And so the work's out there and people can can make what they what they like. But I yeah, I don't. I don't know how helpful those how helpful those those pigeonholes are. I can I can see why people love organizing things and putting things in categories. Um, but I think when you actually do the thing yourself, perhaps you find them a little restrictive, or um, they can maybe make something which isn't that intimidating seem. It's, it's such a heavy word, classical. Sure. So, you know, if we don't want to talk about classical because it's confining, how would you, uh, I mean, we're talking to a podcast audience. So your work and the things that you teach people to paint, how does that stand apart from what else they might see in a museum or a gallery? I think there's two different strands to it, actually. I think there's what I what I do in my own studio and then what I, what I do as a teacher. And I, as the academic director of the school, I, I hope the faculty I work with feel total freedom in that regard as well. They're, they're not being judged. The work they do as teachers is very separate to what they do as educators. In some cases, the overlap is very profound, and, but it, it, they're not obliged to do so. We're not a censoring organization. And I think it, I think it'd be really helpful. I think being a practicing artist and a teacher is a is a pretty ancient thing. If you go back to the 17th century, for example, you know, thinking of Rubens again. He had, a, he had a workshop of 80 people, including people like, you know, Anthony van Dyck, Jakob Jordans, Vorstermans the Etcher, the engraver, and so on. So the idea that you're a, you're a practitioner and a teacher was considered almost um, inevitable. In some cases, it was obliged by the guilds. You actually had to be a master and have pupils to be, to be accepted into the guild. So I, I, I find it's really helpful. And the community you have as being part of the school stops you being a kind of lonely, cross angry person having having access to let's say a hundred young people who are really passionate about the visual arts about learning to be artists is one of the most inspiring ways to spend a day i would i would recommend anyone who's feeling grumpy about the state of the world um to come and spend a day with me teaching and i it's a it's a very restorative experience so let's just talk about your work day. What is, and I know that this is an impossible question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What's a typical work day kind of look like for a, a painter like yourself? I, I paint primarily from natural light. So the, my days in the, it changes according to the seasons. Um, I, sound, I sound like some kind of hippie farmer. Um, <laughs> but it, I wake up pretty early and I get to my studio between sort of you know eight and eight thirty most mornings, and if I'm if I'm teaching at the school, that starts at nine and runs till twelve, and then one until four, and then a little bit of stuff in the early evening. And actually, my own studio it's a very similar rhythm. Um, 
I, there are certainly people who work longer hours, but actually if you're really giving yourself during the working day to put in two, two and a half shifts of that time takes a, takes a huge amount out of you. So I, I, I feel I deserve a beer at the end of the day if I, when, I, when I have one. Fair enough. And how did you become a classical painter? I mean, you know, you, you're not born that way, I guess. No, that's, I think that's one of the great things in terms of this idea of art education. I, I think people, the, the, the concept of talent is probably one of the most misunderstood or um, we see it so narrowly. We see talent, especially in the arts and in the visual arts in terms of painting and sculpture, almost exclusively in the domain of manual dexterity. And I think there are so many other talents that uh, an artist or an art school is hoping to, um, to imbue students with. One of the things we talk about a lot is the idea of habits. So do you, get, do you get to your studio every day? Do you look after your materials? Do you develop your craft? Do you, are you good at researching projects? Are you managing clients and other, or other institutions or bodies that can help you? But actually, to make it go, you need, you need to understand where you, some people, manual dexterity is going to come very easily. But it's probably of all of those, you know, let's say courage, integrity. It's, manual dexterity is probably the easiest one to teach, whereas the other ones are much harder to, to impart on a, an unwilling or a, a skeptical person. And were you trained through a school sort of like the Florence Academy? Yeah, so I, I trained partly, I, I did a history of art degree in Scotland. So I was basically at University of St Andrews, which is a tiny institution on the northeast coast of um, Scotland. I did a history of art degree, got an MA from them. I was also training with an American painter in Florence called um, Charles Cecil, who still has a school in Florence. And then I also studied with um, Daniel Graves at the Florence Academy of Art and then became a, a member of the faculty there. So it's, there, are, there are a number of people that kind of, um, in moments that fed into this. Actually, I knew I wanted to be a painter and, have a, and kind of live in Italy when I was 14 years old. And that was a, that was a high school trip to, to Florence with the head of art, a few students and a few professional artists. And I, I came from a very small professional background, and I, we were doing this, we were working really hard, and I just thought, this is the most wonderful thing in the entire world. Why does everyone not want to do this? I certainly do. And um, yeah, nothing yet has happened to make me, make me think it was a bad idea. Fair enough. So I want to understand how the Florence Academy of Art works. You're the academic director of an art school, Florence Academy. And you train painters to paint, even if you don't like the classical label, I think most of our listeners are going to understand it as classically or maybe the realist tradition. You've got a three-year program, but this doesn't work exactly like a typical college or university, uh, right? Why is that? I mean, actually, for the, the first part, compared to my own university experience, our students work incredibly hard. So they're there every day from, you know, they most of them arrive 8, 8.30 in the morning, and they have, as well as the 9 to 12, 1 to 4, they are doing, you know, anatomy classes in the evening, art history. A lot of the, the exercises take a while, but in the evenings, there are also much quicker forms of drawing as well. So, no, they work, they work incredibly hard. The, the old, the system of the school is based on the, the French Academy and its kind of satellite ateliers that were developed in the 19th century. And the old Ecole des Beaux-Arts training was a seven-year program. It was like being a vet or something. I mean, you know, you really it took a huge amount of time. It took a huge amount of energy. It was also state subsidized, and our students are um, are paying for their own are paying their own way. And to ask, I think, in the contemporary environment, to ask a young person or a youngish person to set aside seven years of their life and all that money, I think it's never going to happen. Uh, there are one or two exceptional cases who have the resources and the time, but in, for the most part, you know, three years tallies with a conventional time of an undergraduate program but it's uh no they work it's a really it's a really intense course and also for sculptors as well tom is it fair to say that the approach you all take at the florence academy is the dominant one that artists sort of come up in over the past century no i mean i think in the past century i think we're very <clears throat> we're very much a, an outlier i you know all sorts of things that were, i think there was a an understandable, some people credit the First World War. I think you can even go further back. And I think there was a great disillusion that set in after the French Revolution in Europe that affected, you know, artists, poets, and so on. And so, no, since I would say since, since about the, the turn of the 20th century, the type of training that most artists receive has steadily been less about acquiring a specific set of skills and the idea of just simply express the idea that you're not so much a student, you're already an artist. I think that's been the big the big change, and we 
with the students when we talk to them about their work, when we help them through the exercises, it's very much the idea that this, you're not actually creating art. You're learning to make artistic decisions, but you're not the work you're making is actually unhelpful in many cases to see it as artistic. And that's a, that's a huge difference to most um, art schools today. I'm not an expert on what they do in conservatories, but I would think if you're learning to play the violin in a conservatory, your working scales, your working technique, a long, long, long time before you are working on the expressive side because you have to build that capacity. It sounds like your approach is definitely a little closer to the conservatory approach than many other schools and places where artists would learn. Is that an apt comparison? Yeah, I think it's very apt. A colleague of mine, uh, Ramiro Sanchez, is also a musician. He often talks about the distinction between performance and practice. And a musician's life is spent you know, mostly practicing. So perhaps some folks in art training would say that the thing that you're training is a thing of the past, that artists kind of moved on. So you know, why do you believe in teaching in this craft-building way? And I don't mean that as a pejorative. I just mean if there's other ways of doing it, you're holding to this one. Why? I think it's a great question. It's a really fair question. And we ask ourselves that all the time. I think it's ultimately it's liberating. I think you're giving someone control over their expressive means. We still teach. You mentioned music. If you're learning to dance, if you're learning to do most creative writing, dis based, cre writing based disciplines, you still go through a very similar training. It's really only the visual arts where we decided as a society or for whatever reason that this is no longer strictly necessary. So it's I find it very strange that the visual arts are the only outlier or the, the principal outlier in that field. If, if you want to make certain types of artwork, I don't think our training is necessary at all, but I don't think it's ever unhelpful. And if, and if you're if further down the line, you want to make certain types of things, then not having this training is going to be a hindrance. This doesn't stop you doing anything. If you go back to the, the tail end of the 19th century, Matisse, Picasso, Degas, and Sargent, for example, were all trained in identical ways, and their student work is almost impossible to separate. If you look at their, let's say, their pencil drawings, you wouldn't be able to tell who was going to end up doing what. So it's, in the end, if the, if the will and the, the soul, if you like, of the artist is strong enough, that will come out. So if you look at pictures of students that are working at the Florence Academy, and I have, you can look at them on the website. They're pretty incredible, I'm, I'll just say. Um, but you'll see actually a, a lot of consistency. In fact, you'll see a bunch of students sort of painting the same subject or the same thing in the same style. Um, I would think that that would at some point be a tension that would come up, right? I mean, some students want to be creative, this very what a lot of people would call a conformist approach to art instruction. Um, you know, how do you set the value proposition to that for students who I am sure are kind of chomping at the bit to do, uh, you know, to get to the end, to get to the end result and those abilities? Great. It's a great question as well. And I think if you go back, there's, there's another historical, there are lots of historical precedents for this. Uh, I got, I've got from my undergraduate studies and so on, I've got a lot of friends who work in the art history world in terms of you know, both in museums and also on the commercial side. And there are, to go back to the Rubens example again, there are still drawings and paintings that Rubens did while he was in, sorry, that Van Dyck did in Rubens' studio where no one can work out who did them. And Jordan's as well, because there was a studio style. So when you're in that environment, you're learning. And the first thing you learn to do is to gain control of your means in an established way that everyone is on the same page and you say, this is what we're here to do. Later on, you, you move on and absolutely, and you, you want students to be desperate to leave you to hate their teachers and to be ready to, if, if, that's their, if that's what they want to do, cast it all aside on the day after they graduate. That's absolutely, that's absolutely encouraged. And then while you're in that environment, so it's, I, I, I take it as a mark of the, the coherence of the program in Daniel Graves, who started the school back in 91. And the idea is that it's, yeah, that there's, an, there's an agreed curriculum, an agreed way of working through the projects, and it gives, it gives an, obje an objective a fairly objective set of uh, language and set of principles that actually everyone can understand their progress very quickly and very as a result. So do you want or do you think your students should all work in a similar style upon graduation? No, not at all. And we have, uh, we did a, we, there was a book produced a few years ago on the 25th anniversary of the school. And one of the most striking and wonderful parts of it were people that are doing installation work. People have gone to work for Pixar. 
I have a, a colleague called Morty Brady who did work on Lord of the Rings. And so people are taking the skills they're learning and applying them in all sorts of different ways. And I think that's one of the really exciting parts of what the skill set opens up to you. So for a young person, it doesn't mean you have to be painting portraits the rest of your life. That's That happens to be what I want to do. And I can help people very directly, students who want to go down that road. But we have a faculty of about 30 people. Their experiences and their skills have taken them in all sorts of different directions during during their careers. So in art instruction, and I would think not at the Florence Academy, but elsewhere, I do think that there's this tendency to want to teach creativity before teaching the base skills or base practicalities of the craft. And I think that we see this in K-12 schools as well. And it's this sort of tension that I'm interested in for the things that I think about day in, day out. We've seen a lot on this with reading instruction. Instead of it being as rooted in explicit building blocks instruction, a lot of it has been motivated by a desire for students to develop a love of reading, right? And likewise, in math instruction, we've seen fights over this California math framework, and there's been a push to root math instruction less in the building blocks of math content and more in teaching students to appreciate math and think mathematically somewhat distant from content. All that to ask, where do you think this tendency to get past or maybe skip the content and the building blocks comes from? I think there are a number of reasons it can easily happen and happen in some cases for very benevolent reasons. In other cases, maybe less so. I think every year as a teacher, you your life experience and your practical experience takes you one year further away from the people you're teaching. And therefore, your assumptions and the body of knowledge you have grows. and some teachers, I think, are able to re constantly remember what it was like to be a student. But I think in other cases, people, some teachers try to make people where they are now. And it's that's, actually, that's not necessarily the best way. It's It comes from a very charitable place, a kind place of trying to give people you know, very sophisticated knowledge, very grown-up knowledge. But I think those initial steps are incredibly important. I think they have enormous value, even if at times for a teacher, it might seem boring, repetitive. But actually, you're not trying to turn people into you. And I think the more advanced, the earlier you introduce really quite advanced concepts, the more risk there is of creating a kind of cult-like environment around teachers, which I think is well, potentially very dangerous and um, unhelpful. Tom, let me ask you about some of the practicalities of the school. How many students are enrolled at, at a given time at the Florence Academy? So we have 100 more or less in Florence. We have 25 in Sweden. And we're also running, which is, I think is interesting for this podcast in particular, a master's program through the state of New Jersey with the help of the state of New Jersey to bring this type of training into K-12 education, to give teachers and K-12 teachers the chance to bring skills-based exercises into the classroom. And how long has the New Jersey project been underway? It was started during the pandemic by Susan Tintori, who was the previous administrator of the executive school, and someone called Mandy Theis, who's a teacher who felt the need and saw it in her own classroom how how much the children in her care really enjoyed these types of exercises. And so Mandy and Susan together started the program. We, we graduated the first cohort last summer. So that's, it's been running for three years. Excellent. Um, so in Florence, in the, the main school, who are your students? Are these high school graduates? Are they college graduates? Are these like career changers in midlife? What, who comes? That's a, it's a great question. We have 43 different countries. So they're from all around the world. The majority are at the age where they maybe done a year of university or a, let's say an arts, a conventional art school somewhere else and realized they wanted a more skills-based training. And we also have people in the last few years, people who've changed uh, the direction of their life very dramatically, probably as a result of the pandemic. But the majority of our students are people who've done you know, a year or maybe sort of six months at a conventional art school and then realized they wanted something else. And if that's where you get your students, how do you get instructors? I mean, wh what makes you capable of being a, an instructor? For the most part, our instructors are taken from our graduate pool because what we're teaching is pretty specific. I, I also, obviously, I, I, as I said earlier, I studied with Charles Cecil, so that's a very similar system. And there was a little bit of readjustment and adjustment in language and experience, but that was, that was a fairly straightforward transition. But for the most part, our graduates, our teachers, our graduates are then our teachers. So we, we choose from a graduate pool. And the sort of things that go on are not just painting, correct? We also run a sculpture course. So there we have 26 full-time sculpture students. 
we run every Friday, there's an art, there's art history, which we also bring in museum professionals and academics from the outside world. So things like Harvard University have a big postgraduate research center in Florence at Itati. And so they, they often send us people down from, obviously Florence has a number of museums and in that, in the art history world, Florence, you know, very happily and very readily. So we can, when possible, we kind of grab people and bring them in. And then there's also the anatomy, the anatomy and the, the echo shape. Echo shape might be a new word to some people. It's the idea of a flayed figure. So it's, it's the best way to learn anatomy is partly through lectures, but partly through hands-on experience. And you make a figure out of clay where you make the skeleton first, and then on half of it, you place the muscles over the top of the bones so you can see the two together and you really understand how the body is built. You have a three-year program for painters, which are the majority of your students. How does that basically break out? What's the progression? So the first year is a, is a drawing program. So you learn both in pencil and charcoal, a couple of other medium as well you're really learning to identify a shape and then begin to understand how it turns into or how it meets other shapes so you're learning just control of accuracy control of tone how to set something in a space and how to translate the three-dimensional world onto a two-dimensional surface the the second year is a transition to painting so you're learning how to do that first of all in black and white in paint and then with a limited range of colors and for those first two years, we, we give people, we give the students the exercises. So we set the models up, we allocate them plaster casts. And then in the third year, they start bringing in objects to create their own still lives, choosing their own models for portraits. And so you're beginning to explain a little bit your, your inner world. You're starting to make choices. And so you, almost it's like, it's like doing the splits very, very slowly. At the beginning, both feet are in our world and gradually through the program, your feet move further and further apart. And then hopefully at the end, you've got just enough flexibility left to, to jump out and make your own um, transition into the, the life of an artist or wherever you go. So what are the main subjects? I mean, what are students drawing in this drawing year? Are they drawing people or, or landscapes? That's a great question. I mean, every, every student works from the nude figure for three hours a day. And then the other half of the day, we allocate a um, specific task based on their level. So to begin with, you learn to copy drawings, just to give you an understanding of you know, an extra level of technical control. Then you start working from plaster casts, and that's partly about the 3D to 2D transition, but it's also looking at the work of other artists and seeing how they might have exaggerated form to tell a story. You know, how do you make a frown? What shapes make up a frown? What shapes make up a smile? What shapes give you intensity? And how might you arrange these shapes under a certain light effect to be able to tell your story clearly or in a more enigmatic way. So tell me about the casts. Again, remind me, what is a cast and why is having students draw from a cast instructive? Yeah, that's a good question. Back again, let's say on the Grand Tour. So people from, the, from Northern Europe used to go to France and particularly Italy and sometimes Greece in the end of the 17th through the 18th and 19th centuries. And they would bring things home because it was thought that these objects had a particular you know, value in terms of beauty and you know, learning and sometimes even just interior design. And it's always been uh, since the Renaissance, you know, Michelangelo learned to draw by sitting in the garden at San Marco, drawing from copies of Roman and Greek sculptures. Obviously, there's a, there's a limit on the number of them and how easily they can travel. So people would make copies of those. You make a mold first and then, then, in, then in plaster or resin or whatever you want. That the, the options have increased somewhat, and we have a, a really lovely Danish sculptor who's a, an expert mold maker and caster called Thor Larsen, and he works a little bit with the Danish Royal Cast Collection. And they, the, the great thing in the cast world, it's, it's really almost like a fetishistic subsect of the the art world is how many generations there are between your cast and the original. So if the mold is a first generation or a second generation mold, you're looking at something which is pretty um, powerful and significantly related. And as molds are made from subsequent casts, you move a little bit further away all the time. And we have a pretty, we have a pretty good collection of um, mostly second generation, but a couple of even better, even better casts. So what skills are students learning in this first year? I mean, I look at my two sons and I say, well, you seem to be able to draw and you seem to not be able to, but I could not tell you what the difference in their skills are. And they probably just you know, one just has better hand-eye coordination or something like that. I'm not sure. But you're building these skills from the ground up. So what do you want them to learn in the drawing year? Above all, it's actually, it sounds 
perverse, but more than learning to draw, it's learning to look and see. I think the if you look at, let's say, a really high-level kitchen, this might be an analogy people can easily understand. Um, the head chef in a really top-end kitchen will very rarely chop the onions. He's mostly just tasting the food. And so at a certain point, what you really want is an incredibly refined palate. And so what you're training people to do is to perceive differences in it's almost like mathematical sequences. You're looking for, you have a subject and then you have your drawing or your, your painting and you're looking for the proportion or the, the light to dark value or eventually the color that, that is out of sequence. And by having teachers who can understand, who understand those sequences through, through practice and their own intuition, you learn to develop and you learn to ask questions of your work and of your subject in a way that allows you to make those, to understand those, the answers to those questions very, very quickly. You know, for example, uh, you might identify the problem. There's also learning to find the most expedient solution. So the head might be too big for the body in a drawing, for example. Do you make the head smaller or the body bigger? There's, there's different solutions. And you then have the input of a teacher. You might get different answers to that question from two different teachers. But you're learning to navigate your way through those solutions. And it, eventually, again, it gives you control. You can... Like probably the most frustrating thing in life is not is to feel misunderstood. And if you're trying to make a painting about, let's say, a, a power imbalance, a bigger person and a smaller person, if you're not in control of proportion, you might not be able to tell that story. So do students take all the same classes? Are there, are, are there electives? Sure. For the most part, there are set classes and then some of the anatomical elements, the art historical elements. And then we teach... There are weekend sort of add-ons that people can do in terms of extra portraiture or landscape painting at certain types of the year. But the main figurative part is um, is not an elective at all. And in fact, attendance is probably the thing we value most highly. We, we don't grade artwork, but we are looking to see if you turn up every day, you try really hard and you engage with your instructors, you'll get so much better, so much faster. And what do instructors do while the students are working? Because most of the day they're working, right? They're not, I mean, there's anatomy classes where they're learning, but in these times when they're actually doing the work, putting in the hours, um, what does the instructor do? It depends a little bit by the year group they're with. So in the first year, you, you'll you go to the student and you'll more or less be, especially at the beginning, you'll be correcting mistakes and reinforcing methodology. So... You can say, you know, this needs to move up and down or left and right, that needs to get darker. But above all, you're trying to instill a methodology that allows the student to ultimately make that jump for themselves. Later on, as the projects become a little bit more personal, you it's almost like you start with, what is your idea here? And the student will have done studies and preliminary work, preparatory work. And you would talk through those and ask them to explain their idea and you'd say, well, okay, you know, you want this this moment to be the protagonist, but actually when I look at the painting, this is the part that I notice first. Why is that happening? Is it about reorganizing shapes, reorganizing colors? Do you need to adjust your painting or do you need to adjust your, your subject in this case? And so, you know, you're beginning to answer. A, it moves from something which is very, very objective to the student receiving things which are still rooted in objective language, but, you know, they can be a little more subjective by that point. And how much does a student progress in that first drawing year? I mean, how much better are they at the end of the year than when they enter in? For some people, this is absolutely not the right place and they feel they make very little progress. But in most cases, when it's quite gratifying. Sometimes you know, everyone's on social media these days. People are posting things on Instagram all the time. And so you see at the, at the end of each trimester, the student brings in their work that they've done in the last three months and they put it all on boards and they sit in a room with their teachers and you say, okay, well, this is what you've done and this is what we're going to work on next. And one of the things that's pretty striking in almost every student is that the, the drawing in pretty much 99% of the cases is identifiably stronger than the, the ones at the start. And I'll just put in a plug here, Tom, some of the pictures that you see on the website are just astonishing. It's astonishing work. It's it's really worth checking out. And we'll include in the show notes a connection to the website. Um, okay, so a little more quickly, what do the painting years look like? There's two painting years, the intermediate and the advanced. How are the painting years different from the drawing year? So it's it's this kind of you know, wonderful, beautiful, confusing medium of oil paint. And so the first thing you'll give an introduction to is you know, these are going to be the pigments you use, which start with a small group and slowly expand. 
we talk about how to prepare them by hand so you can you know you can really control the the quality of your materials the the thickness of the paint you're going to be using to give again to give yourself control it's not it's not um it's not the desire to be rembrandt or anything like that it's much more about you learn to draw and a pencil or a piece of charcoal makes a mark on a piece of paper because there's friction and a lot of commercially made tube paint is very oily or the canvases are prepared differently and so sometimes that students find that very helpful other times they find it very confusing and so you're there's a lot of work in that first year on material getting to know your materials so that you can demonstrate and exhibit and be comfortable with your drawing skills using the brush as a drawing tool and this is just like this is just what you were talking about before really being able to build up from sort of the ground up frees you at the back end to be able to do what you want to do rather than to be able to be confined by what you've learned to do with commercial paints or whatever the case may be yeah and you know a lot of that first stage in the painting course is done in essentially monochrome paint and there are some artists you know someone like Anselm Kiefer is a pretty famous example um, who's done a huge amount of work not using color so the there are ways that you can take even these initial exercises and take them into your own creative work afterwards. And there are all sorts of avenues that people can move off. You know, there's a rich history of grisaille painting going back to the, you know, to ancient Rome. So it's none of these things in themselves have to be narrowing. They're only narrowing if the, um, you know, the student chooses to chooses to not see the value or sometimes if it's, if it's not explained in its fullness. So we've talked about how we move, you move from drawing to painting but it's not obvious to me why you would move from drawing to painting. Why don't you just teach them to paint right out of the gate? I mean, what's what's the logic there? I mean, oil paints a pretty complex medium. And I think when you're trying to want, understand how much oil you need to put into a medium, the brush can be confusing. Actually, if you're trying to do all of that at the very beginning, I think it's too much to load on someone. Lots of the students paint themselves anyway, and a lot of them have previous experience. But it's it's really about... It's an educational system that starts with a very simple task and slowly increases in complexity as you move through. And actually, in the second year, there's a certain amount of backwards and forwards. So it's not that you suddenly stop drawing. And actually, once students start painting and gain confidence, the way that they draw evolves as they paint. And so, you know, there's there's lots of you know quick pose sketching done during during the program, and even longer pose, longer projects after people start painting. So that the idea is that the two things really inform each other. It's no, it's, it's a really fair question because it's not that you stop drawing when you start painting. And there were, I mean, there were ateliers in the past or academies in the past that took a slightly different approach. Others absolutely took ours. So there's there's not a historically or even in the contemporary um, art training world, there's not there's not a fixed answer to these questions. But we found we found this very effective, and that's that's the way we choose to do it. But it's not the it's not the holy grail or the only way. Tom, I had a friend in college who was I thought a brilliant painter and she only used palette knives. I could not understand how she could paint with a palette knife the way she painted. Um, do you only use brushes? And if you primarily teach through brushes, why? What's the division there that uh, someone like me would not understand? No, sometimes when students, uh, let's say, are scared of paint or use the brush in a in a particular way, we often give them an exercise to paint with a palette knife because that actually that can help them to understand different ways of mark making and drawing so no the palette the palette knife is a you know rembrandt used it plenty of artists have used it in the past so it's a it's a totally valid expressive tool and it is occasionally also part of the painting program so no your 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 friend was right <laughs> yes i found it amazing what she could do with uh those little pieces of metal um is there a reason that the program's three years and not longer yeah, some students take longer. So for the for the most part, it's a we found we can deliver this for the average student in three years. It's a push and it's intense, and they work pretty hard. And people arrive at the end like an aeroplane coming into land JFK on fumes, um, but they can get through it. But there are people that, and we have the flexibility to offer the course. Um, you know, people. Some people say almost an entire fourth year. Some take an extra trimester for whatever reason. So. I think three years lines up. I think a lot of people, you know, their parents or their family or you know, whoever, they save money by doing work with the anticipation of a college program. And most of those are three to four years. And so just to be able to um, fit in with people's resources and expectations, that's the principal reason. For that. But you could easily do a four or even a five-year program if, if someone wanted to. Whereas a seven-year program may have been more sensible in an earlier 
era when sort of a guild or sort of something like that would have a longer training program for artisans or craftsmen. Is that is that a fair comparison? We have electric light, so we can work. We can do some things in the evenings as well, and that would have been much more complicated. Or you know, candles are pretty expensive then too. So I, I think technology. Yeah, it, it's easy to paint our you know, endeavors like us as being anti-technology in some way. We're we're not. I think we're, you know the wonderful thing of modern life is I can go online, book a flight and tickets to the Prado, and I can be in Madrid in a couple of hours' time, and I can go and look at the most beautiful paintings in the world, and I'm I'm very grateful for that. Um, you brought up technology. One question I wanted to ask. Some students now must come in having learned to use iPads to draw on. Is that affecting a large number of students? What do you make of that? Yes, yeah, so at, at the end of term, a lot of students bring in kind of digital work and they share it with us. Everything we do in the classroom is pretty much done by, by hand, as it were. But I have colleagues who, when they're doing particularly preparatory work for big projects, they might then, let's say, take a photograph of a drawing they've done or a study they've done. And then if they're on a long train journey or they're traveling, they might manipulate it and play with it on those drawing tools. So I think there's, I think to be exclusively, I, I'm, I'm personally not interested so much in digi digital art. It's not my, it's not my tool, but I think to be, you know, to take an extreme position either end isn't very helpful. I think there's, there's an amazing possibility offered by a kind of hybrid um, approach to creativity in that way. Okay, Tom. This is the report card, and we have a time called Grade It, and you've come across it. Are you ready? Yeah, let's go. Vermeer. That's A+. plus. I think he's... If you're an artist, you have to make a world or make home, and I there's almost no world or home I think I'd rather spend a bit of time in than Vermeer's. Okay, so I'm asking in the U.S. context. You can tell me if you're familiar enough to give a grade. Uh, but uh, K-12 art instruction. I'm going to give it a B plus. I think there's enormous potential. I keep meeting teachers who are doing our MA program and they're some of the most kind of committed people I've ever met. They're really passionate. And I think a lot of them feel I'm sort of stymied or don't feel the possibility system. But I, yeah, I, I think the, the potential for the potential in the system, given the quality, of the, given the quality of the people who are teaching is enormous. YouTube art instruction videos. B B minus. I nothing beats being in the room with a really committed teacher. But if that's what it takes to get someone started on their journey, then I'm. I, it would be outrageously counterproductive and um, snobbish to reject it entirely. But I nothing beats in person instruction. Showing K twelve students art history documentaries. Uh, a plus. Bring it on. I think show people the best things as well. I think children are. Uh, amazingly discerning and show them really wonderful mind life-changing things and let you know see what happens site size instruction and you might have to explain that a bit i think it's an amazing learning tool so site size is it's a very modern term of practice that dates back actually a lot further um the, for example gilbert stewart I think, so, uh, who painted george washington president adams and a number of the early I think four out of the first five presidents he painted, and Gilbert Stuart was a sight size painter. It's you know his methods are recorded. Sight size is a sight size is a method. It's an it's a great method. It's a great method for teaching. It's also American. It's a new word. It's a it's a word that was coined you know in the last hundred years, but its roots go back a lot further. There are there's visual evidence for it going way back. So if a painting looks best about four or five meters. Way, that would suggest the artist made a lot of decisions about that painting from four or five meters away. So if you go into a gallery and you look at a you know, mid to late period, say Velasquez or Rembrandt picture, when you're up close, it will look like a collection of smudges and blotches. And as you stand about two and a half meters away, suddenly you'll, you'll really understand what you're looking at. That would suggest that the artist had a pretty physically dynamic relationship with his canvas. And there are all sorts of accounts of people like Gilbert Stewart, who painted Washington and Adams, putting the portrait next to the sitter's head and standing back across the room and seeing the two together to, to scale. And so that's at the root of what we teach. And I think it's a great learning device, but it is absolutely not the only tool an artist needs to make a career. There are all sorts of other ways to, to analyze your work and to analyze nature. So I'll give it an, an A rather than an A+. Plus. Um, and the A plus is the fact that you know it's a it's a beginning and it's a really useful tool, but it is absolutely not the only tool that an artist will need in 
in their armory to to be able to make the things they need. It works beautifully for life-size images at roughly eye level when you're working at eye level. And the more you go outside that, the more you're going to need other you're going to need other you know other types of learning. Well, let's talk about that. How about landscape painting? I, I think A plus. One of my one of my favorite phrases that any art historian has ever written came. Some he's, he's called Kenneth Clark, who did a famous series called Civilization. But he wrote a really beautiful book on landscape painting. And there's a sentence at the beginning of I think it's the third or the fourth chapter, where he says, "Facts become art through love," which I think is a a really beautiful. And it's a, it has a sort of a truth that's way bigger, perhaps, than I think a lot of people would understand just reading that the first time. And so any art form that inspires a piece of writing like that has to be um, immensely meaningful. And I think one of the challenges for, a, let's say, a traditional painter today is people are saying, okay, well, what about conceptual art? What about meaning in your work? What about telling stories? And I think whatever side of these arguments you come down on, the, the idea of climate and environment are probably some of the most pressing issues today. And I think land, you know, there's there's a huge amount of space for uh, contemporary landscape painters to look at and bring up those kind of themes in their work. So I think it's a it's a one of my favorite picture uh, landscape paintings. It inspired wonderful writing, and I think the potential for really interesting, challenging, and provocative work is is absolutely there as well. The Zorn palette. <laughs> You've used a number of terms today that are, are, are sort of squabbled over by people in our in our world. Some, there's, there's the Apelles palette, the Zorn palette. I'm going to give it an A because I think it's really about learning to when when you when you love something or you love a person, you love them as much for their limitations uh, or even for their flaws, if you like, as much as the things that are really wonderful about a person. And the Zorn palette teaches you how much when you're mixing colors or making mixtures, it's about juxtaposition rather than necessarily having every mixture. So it's white, and it originally it had been lead white, but that's pretty hard to get hold of now because lots of countries have laws on toxicity. Um, there would have been yellow ochre, which is still very safe, which is a kind of a warm yellow that comes from the south of France. There's then it was vermilion red, which is also controversial in terms of toxicity because it's made from mercury. So it's sometimes substituted with a cadmium red, but even those are now becoming complicated too. This is a whole different world. And then there's um, generally ivory black. Um, sometimes there's an earthier red, but anyway, white, yellow, red, and black. And this is a fairly confined palette, right? I mean, you really have to use it appropriately because, uh, well, there's no blues or greens, right? And it's named after the Swedish painter Anders, Anders Zorn, who, you know, there's, there's a famous self-portrait of him that's in the museum in Stockholm of him with a painting and interior, and in the background is a kind of semi-nude figure. He's in the front, and you can see these colors on his, on his palette. He frequently used other colors, so it's not a. Um, but it's really about learning juxtaposition. So if, if any of your if any of your listeners are at home and you've got these colors lying around, what I would just get you to do is take take the black and the white, mix it together, and put it next to a blob of um, the red, and that black and white will look like blue. Then take that black and white mixture and put it next to an actual blue, and it will start to look like something else. And you realize that you know you, we can never with with paint and its combinations actually mimic and copy exactly the spectrum of colors that exist. So you're always working more or as much through juxtaposition as you are through actually just matching, as it were, pixels as if you were working in a very kind of servile um, way. And so it really teaches you how much can be achieved just through juxtaposition and working through relationships, which I think is a beautiful lesson, again, which has much broader implications. The Management of Italian Art Museums. <laughs> uh, love-hate relationship. Okay, opening hours and the fact that it changes and you think you're going to be able to get to this place um, and the way that they make the information public, at times it's a C-, minus. but equally some of my, I think the archaeological museum in Naples is probably my favorite place in the world and if I had to be trapped anywhere for a night, I would be trapped there. So for the quality of the collections, um, the quality of some of the curators, they get they get an A or an A+, plus. but at times it's so frustrating. You've traveled on a bus or a train you get to the place and they're open on the, th the second Tuesday of every month, but not the third kind of thing. And there's nowhere to find this information online. So um, it's, a, it's a mixed bag. And I think um, you learn to be pretty patient living here. I still wouldn't change it for anything, but the, there are times where, um, you know, I had more hair 10 years ago. <laughs> Velasquez. A plus, probably a along with Titian and Rembrandt, I think he's my favorite painter. I think the, the really great artists, not so much if you look at one painting, but if you look at the body of their work, 
they really give a, a sense of what it, the range and breadth of the, the human experience. They give you joy, they give you terror, they give you fear, they give you pride, vanity, vulnerability. And I, in a very quiet way, I think he's, you know, one of the, the that holy trinity of Titian, Rembrandt, Velasquez, those, those are the painters I go back to time and time again. And I, I, there's a quiet truthfulness in his work that I think is so extraordinarily, you know, modern's the wrong word, timeless is the wrong word, but it, it's still incredibly powerful and very, very moving. Drawing with just pencil and paper. A plus plus plus. Um, I I don't have one on me right now, but I generally have a a sketchbook with me. I, if I'm traveling, I tend to use a pen because the the pencil will get smudged in the pocket. But uh, the simple eloquence of a line is one of the most beautiful things, and I perhaps even more, it's always the great toss up whether color or line is is the thing that really touches us when we look at um, work. And maybe some people are more influenced by one or the other. But uh, you know, a life without line would not be worth living. All right. You've uh, completed your graded requirement. Thank you, Tom. Um, let me talk about, in the academy, the consistency of the instruction. How much alignment is there in the instructional approach and methods among instructors? I mean, do they all use the same approach? How much variation will you find across instructors? To an extent, the, it's a pretty nuanced answer to that because on one level, they've all learned or most of them have learned the same way, and there's a high degree of consistency. Equally, the, the faculty are as international as the student body, and they're mostly speaking English as a second language. And so everyone's speaking this through their own kind of cultural prism. And I, for the most part, everything that goes wrong at the school is a kind of how to put it, crimes of passion. It's people getting too involved with things. But the other, a close second is misunderstanding of people thinking they're saying the same thing, but it's being interpreted in very different ways. And so that's it's not a perfect answer to that question, but I... The, the discrepancies that are there are very often come as a result of people speaking English in a, you know, through different cultural filters. It's one of the most... But if you were to compare this to an arts college in the U.S. or, you know, a political science department in the U.S., you would have fairly different individualistic sets of instruction that are sort of balled together in a university. And it makes a course of study, but it may just not be as uniform compared to that. Would the academy be much more uniform? Yeah, much more uniform. And I, I think it's it's absolutely a strength of the school, but also obviously for certain students, it would be a profoundly frustrating experience. And you know, some people, we have a very low dropout rate, but some people find that level of uniformity you know, frustrating or difficult to understand or difficult to deal with. In the end, most people find their teacher in their time at the school. So there's, there're enough discrepancy so that you know, most students are able to identify with someone and say, this is someone who I either their work is represent something aspirational or their way of teaching strikes a chord with me, the way they use language or the way they explain things. So there's 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 just enough discrepancy, but I think the coherence is, you know, actually a great strength of the school that um that Daniel founded. Let me ask you about that strength, because I, as someone who watches institutions of education, a lot of times there's less control than one might expect. There's less uniformity. There's arguably less understanding of exactly what it is we are doing. And therefore, there's a lot more looseness about what is taught. Uh, what do you think, more broadly speaking, about the benefits of sort of a tight alignment when you apply that to education more broadly? Any thoughts? Um, yeah, I'm very unqualified to talk about things I haven't experienced. But I, if I was a student, um, we're we're about to have we get um, we get our accreditation done via NASAD, the National Academy of Schools and Art and Design, and they're they're, they're coming for a visit actually in about a month's time. So actually, this sort of question is kind of front and center. And so, if, if I was a student, I would go to a place having and students seem to be more and more informed about the nature of the experience they're going to have. They're probably a lot more, did a lot more research than certainly I did when I was going to university as an undergraduate. It, it was a well-known school that had, that had some quite well-known professors and I thought I would have a nice time there. That was about the extent of my research. And the, the students who apply today seem to have a very clear idea of what they're going to get. And obviously that creates quite specific expectations. And so I think if we're able to deliver, if we through our website, through our promotional material, 
if we're able to say this is what you're going to experience and then the student's experience of that is very close to what their expectations are i think it actually makes for a fairly happy environment and it makes the you know student support and all those other areas actually much easier to manage because the the relationship between what you offer and what you get is actually very very close in the the work you're doing in new jersey how does this play out? Is this part of the reason that they brought you on, that there's a great uniformity and clarity, or have you had to be flexible? No, we've learned a lot. I mean, uh, Mandy who Mandy and Susan, who are the two people that really got the course going, Mandy's a K-12 teacher, and so she was, I think, you know, she was, one of her really um, helpful instincts was to say where the program needed to be, you know, softened or moderated or made less intimidating for people that weren't necessarily wanting to be only artists in their life, but they wanted you know, specific exercises from our curriculum that could be incorporated into a K-12 classroom. And so that was her experience. Mandy just stepped down as a director and we've got uh, almost like a husband and wife team coming in. The husband is a, they're both fully trained painters. He's carried on painting and she's a very experienced K-12 teacher. So the, you know, Richard is taking over the direction of the program, but it was, you know, it's Mandy's um, it was Mandy's, you know, brainchild, and it was her passion that got it through. And it was about, you know, where working out where we could, you know, change and soften certain things while absolutely being able to walk into the classroom and stand next to to every part of the course. So I want to drill down on some things that K twelve teachers and folks thinking about K twelve art instruction would be interested in. And one of the big questions is how teachable do you think art is? And I would say, at least in the context that I'm familiar with, we generally think about. Just about any student's going to be able to learn math, history, English, but that doesn't always translate to art in the same way. I mean, there's some folks that think, well, you know, you can get so good, but there's just, you got to have that, that it thing, that talent. So um, if anyone can learn math, English, and history, do you think art is the same way? I wouldn't say that we could produce 100% guaranteed you could turn anyone into the next Michelangelo or Artemisia Gentileschi. I think that's a, um, an absurd boast and even you know, probably not a very helpful mission. I think most people, if they gave themselves the time, you know, either, let's say, you know, if you were taught by one of the people that's doing our MA program and you were doing those classroom exercises, or even if you came to study with us full-time or for a summer, I think you would be amazed how much you learned and how much progress you made i think we could probably train almost anyone to be a useful assistant in a very serious artist studio i'm not sure how familiar you are with k-12 art instruction in america but i you have some sense of it what do you think are some things that the time spent and the the projects that are worked on or the aims of it what do you think k-12 art instruction typically gets wrong and what do you think it does particularly well I think the most important thing that it does well, I think that, that's certainly the teachers I've met and the conversations I've had is just encouraging students and you know, children to understand that even whether you want to be an artist or not, the, the art itself can, is going to have or can have or is very easy to have a beneficial role in your life. It, it makes your life a richer thing. And whether, you want, whether it's just going to be taking your children to a museum or just expanding your sense of what the world is and what its possibilities are. I think where it gets it wrong is it actually, under, the, I think where education in general gets it wrong is where it underestimates the student. I can, I can remember going to see my, my, my mother and also school trips, going to the National Gallery, really as quite a young child. We just went, we'd go and look at one painting. I, can, I still remember those experiences. And maybe, okay, I, I'm, I'm now doing what I'm doing, but I, my friends who you know, had similar experiences growing up, they're working in all sorts of different fields. But art is still a, a part of their life. And I think where you think that children aren't ready for certain types of painting, you mentioned earlier in the, the grading part, the idea of the documentaries. You can show a child, children are, when my, my, my colleagues who have children, when they show them their own work, children give you the most perceptive feedback on your work. It's unbelievable how perceptive a child is looking at a painting. And it's just giving them the time and the framework to be able to ask or answer those questions. And so I think whenever an education system, you know, Shakespeare tells amazing stories that children love. You know, Dante is fantastic with children. It's just about get it, creating the kind of opening the door and leaving it open long enough for people to, to go through. Yeah, difference in how we approach 
what children can do and how they should learn when it comes to music as opposed to art? Because we do see, it seems to me, a lot of people taking piano lessons or violin lessons or, you know, learning in the band makes a lot of sense. It seems like at scale, we don't do the same thing in music. Why do you think that is? Uh, if you agree with it. Yeah, I I guess that's, you know, it's, it's a, this is obviously a very subjective answer. I I see every time I go to a museum, there seem to be groups of children there. I think one of the, the huge advantages of music, or one of the things I'm always envious of my musician friends is, you know, you sit down at the, the piano or you pick up a guitar or any instrument and you make a noise and everyone's having a nice time. With art, it's come back in six months' time and I might have enough work to, you know, think about filling part of a wall or I scraped it all off. But it, the lovely immediacy of music is one of its great advantages and the results are there for everyone in the room. Whereas with painting you know, it's, you know, or, or a sculpture or you know, installation work, whatever it is, it just takes so long. And you know, sometimes the parameters people are looking for, is this going to provide gainful employment? You know, what, what, what are the prospects of this? And I, you know, art history receives a pretty bad press for that. I did an art history degree and people have gone off from, you know, my, like my, from the class of 2005. They're not all working in museums. They all seem to be gainfully employed in different ways. And I, I, I think it puts an unnecessary pressure on students, on applications, just to look at um, education through a, what the economic impact is in the immediate future. I think that's not, a, that's not a helpful framework to look at art education or you know, arts policy in general, actually. So I've asked you some pretty unfair questions, but here comes the big one. What do you think that art instruction should look like? Uh, let's start with elementary schools. I mean, these are elementary students. They have a lot of things to learn. But what should it look like? Once a week, every day? Must it include kids going to museums? Should they be working with clay? Should it just be drawing? I mean, there's a huge range. Just give us some guidance from your perspective. I think to, a childhood trauma seems to be very much based on forcing people to do things they really don't want to do. So um, I think forcing people to do too much of something. I, if you don't have exposure, then you're never going to know. And I think a certain amount, I, you know, I didn't want, no one wants to do Latin or I, having done 10 years of Latin, no one wants to do it, but I, I recognize the value in it today. So I think at least once a week, I, I, I can see being more than that would put a strain on resources. I think there's so many other important things children need to learn, but to, to have no weekly exposure to, to art would be a, would, would represent a significant loss. And, uh, I, I also think that it's the the whole let's say science and technology versus art debate is such a wrong headed one. And I, you know, living in Florence, the Renaissance was a period where people really understood how connected those two worlds are. You know, it's not a binary decision to make. And lots of practitioners in art today are using you know, all sorts of technological means to make their work. So I, I think the first thing I would do is to is is to see that is to try and break down that barrier or to understand ways in which the two seemingly what would have been treated now is you know, is your child a science person or a humanities person how especially at an elementary level how those things can be really complementary and overlapping i think that there's some sort of scope and sequence of skills that would be sort of like the entree for art instruction i mean i can imagine a world in which you know we did drawing and we put together things with popsicle sticks and so forth and that would produce artifacts that we could call children's art but it doesn't necessarily go anywhere or we could live in one where we have less popsicle stick statues um but kids actually move some distance during the year and that that is sort of prescripted out in a less intense way as you're doing at the atelier what do you think about those sorts of approaches and what do you think would be most profitable I, mean, I think it's interesting to if you go back in time and you think, okay, when in the era before um, the very necessary laws surrounding child labor and everything else, but when did when were children identified as being talented and then sent off to go and be an apprentice? And I think that it's it was often around 11, 10, 11, 12 years old that it was identified, and then at about 14, 13, 14, 15, you'd go and be an apprentice. But I think those ages give clue as to when you can start taking art education more seriously and bringing in some slightly more specific. Um, skill-based exercise. I think up until that point, it should be absolutely rooted in enjoyment, in pleasure, in encouragement. And then you're going to be able to identify people that are either either have been encouraged or have decided this is something they like. And you can start as a teacher looking at these you know, fairly primitive drawings they're making and saying, okay, well, you know, here's a drawing of a family. Why is the, why is the child bigger than the dad in this drawing? You, can, you know, Just very basic questions and connecting the decisions they've made to the narrative 
and giving them opportunities as, as they would be doing in writing at that stage to say, you're trying to tell a story and we're going to help you clarify your own story or ask you questions to help you clarify your story. So, you know, you might change your, what you've written. You might change what you've drawn. You might leave it. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guest, Tom Richards. We'll include a link to some of Tom's work, as well as some of the glorious work done by the students of the Florence Academy of Art in the show notes. Also, thanks to our producer, Ellie Lucas, who makes this podcast possible. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, take a moment and leave us a review to help other people find the show. As always, you can send your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus. <laughs>